0: Before we open the word, I wanted to tell you about an opportunity that we have as a, as a church family. And, um, and uh, my prayer is that you'll be moved by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of love to participate. Uh, for most of you in here, the names John and Sharon Hansen are not new, in fact, very old. Um, and yet I recognize there's a lot of new faces here at Parkway, and so you might not know who they are. But John Hanson is the founding pastor of the church who came here 50 years ago in 1966, and he and his wife um, labored, they loved, they prayed, and um, ministered um, to give us what we have now. And I know John would acknowledge it was by grace alone that it happened, but um, John, as of right now, has been in the hospital over a month, and, um, and we're not sure at this point how long he has before he comes um, back to us. Um, and so what we wanted to do in the spirit of grace is rally around him um, and Sharon. Um, Sharon has been every bit involved in the ministry here as John. She still serves as my secretary after 18 and a half years and is an amazing woman of faith. Um, but what we wanted to do as a congregation is we wanted to rally around them. Um, they have some um, some medical um, outstanding debts that are going to need to be paid as well as um, because of the time of life where they are they are going to move from their current house uh, with their uh, son-in-law and daughter um, into their old house on Arlington Circle and um, it's been a rental for over 16 years and is in serious need of updating um, so what we really want to do is we want to bring John and we want to see John and Sharon come back to a place that is comfortable clean and home again so what we're asking you is to consider, if you're Parkway family, um, to um, support that cause and rally around them, and we want to raise the funds to be able to, to make that a home, again, that's, that's livable. So we're going to do that, and you can do that one of two ways. One, you can um, pray. Obviously, they want your prayers more than anything else. Um, second, we're going to be taking a love offering next week, um, both services, and so we're telling you a, a week ahead of time, so you can pray about it and say, how, how do we want to rally around um, two individuals who have given so much to this church. Um, and if you'd like to give, just uh, we'll take that love offering next week and just ask you to put in the memo section um, love offering. And every cent of that will go to either helping them with their medical expenses or in um, updating the house. Uh, if you know people who are who are friends or extended friends of theirs, um, we've been receiving word from people all over the country who've been ministered to by John and Sharon in their many, many decades of ministry. And, um, and even if they want to contribute to, again, this is to show them the love of Christ and the love of a church family, um, they can mail it in and just put that in the memo and, and we'll make sure that that goes to them. So, in, in addition to that, um, we are going to be organizing a series of, uh, well, a few teams to clean and to help them move, um, and those will be formed uh, a little bit later this month. So, um, maybe you don't have a lot to give monetarily, but maybe you have a good, strong back, and that will help too. Okay. So, um, I'm just asking you. This is such an amazing opportunity to love um, two people who have given so much to us. Let's pause for a moment and and uh, and just pray. And if I could ask, just to, if If you would lift John and Sharon up um, in, in your prayers, even if you don't know who they are, I think by what I've just said, you kind of get a sense of who they are. Just ask God to be gracious and God to give strength and God to bring healing into their lives. And then I'll pray and we'll open the word together. Gracious God, we as your people who have been chosen before the foundations of the earth in love to be your adopted sons and daughters through Christ Jesus who gave his life for us. We thank you that above all else you are a God who is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and forgiving thousands their trespasses, iniquities and sins. Father, we are thankful that you never leave us nor forsake us. You are with us, before us, behind us, beside us, above us, below us, within us, and there is no place that we go where you are not with your people. And we trust, we find courage, and we believe in that truth this morning, Father, and I pray that we would believe and know and experience the unshakable refuge that you are and have always been and will always be for your people. And we pray for the faith of John and Sharon and family and just ask that you would be their refuge and strength, that they would know that you were a very present help in time of trouble. And even when the mountains are being thrown into the heart of the sea, there is no reason to fear because you rule. And I pray that for all of us here in this room, living in a troubled, confused world, that you would grant us that grand vision of you as our stronghold and our deliverer, um, who has not only sought to forgive us by your own payment of, of the blood of Christ, but also um, promised us resurrection in his name. And to know that the, the shadow of death at the end of the day will be done away with, it will not even be a word spoken at some point in time, and we look forward to that great day, all because you are a God of steadfast love and mercy. I pray, O oh God, that you would open our minds and hearts to your word, um, your truth. I ask, O oh God, that Christ Jesus would be exalted in our hearts so that we may see him high and lifted up and powerful and strong, gracious even amidst and in the middle of his own humiliation. I pray that you would guard my lips and allow nothing to proceed from them that is inaccurate or not in spirit with the truth of your gospel and that your people would sense your voice, not mine. So uh, be gracious. Amen. I'm going to start by by reading a, a rather extended passage of Scripture. I, ho- I really hope you'll follow along. Um, we're going to read chapter 22, verse 63 to 23, verse 18, the first part of it. And just to give you a little um, context, um, what I'm about to read is the trial of Jesus. Um, we've been working our way through two chapters of Luke, preparing ourselves for um, Good Friday and Easter, which is the that is the grand finale and the heart of our faith. Um, and this section we're about to read is of his trial when he was condemned. But before I read it, I just want to point out back in verse 53 that Jesus referred to this time in his life as your hour and the power of darkness. So what we're about to read is described by Jesus as a time in which the power of darkness has moved in. With that in mind, Let's read beginning in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. By the way, men who are correctional officers are not supposed to do that. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said... If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him to, before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, In side comment here is notice that they have shaped the charge in a distinctively anti-Roman accusation, and saying that he is himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. whether Jesus was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all, that all would consist of, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, of verse 13. But they all cried out together, away with this man. And I'll stop there. You know, I can't help um, but visualize in my own mind as I read that, um, a scene from c.s. lewis's the lion the witch and the wardrobe in which aslan and most of you have probably seen the movie if not you've read the book and you know the book's a whole lot better and if you've not seen the movie or you don't know anything about c.s. lewis then aslan is the allegorical reference to jesus the lion of the tribe of judah and there is this scene in which the white witch and aslan the mighty lion have an appointment on the top of the mountain Of the stone table. And there, the white witch, white not because she's pure, but white because she is evil. She is gathered with her consortium of of evil minions, all waiting for this appointment with Aslan. Aslan is seen from the tree line, and Lewis describes it perfectly. At the sight of Aslan, the, the mighty lion, her heart is first struck with fear. And so are her minions as he makes his way up to the top of the hill of the stone table. From a distance, little Susan and Lucy are watching Aslan make his way up to this hill that is dominated by evil. What they don't know is to give his life. And they watch him make his way methodically and intentionally to the top of that hill with snarls and mocking and ghouls and wraiths around him. And Susan and Lucy are looking, wondering when he's going to roar, when he's going to pounce, and when he's going to shred his enemies. Surprisingly, he doesn't. He makes his way up to the stone table, and he allows, he, he allows him to take his powerful paws and um, bind, bind them, both sets Then he allows him to muzzle the strength of his teeth. And then if you remember, they shave him, which is a way of saying he was stripped of his glory. And then he was laid on the table. There you have mighty Aslan submitting to abject humiliation. But it's interesting in Lewis's book that little Lucy from far away, seeing her beloved Aslan, the mighty, uh, shorn, and humiliated sees something astounding. A direct quote from the book that Lucy saw, and I quote, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. Just hold on a second. This is a mighty lion stripped of his strength and stripped of his glory, And what she sees in that moment is the face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever before. In other words, she saw strength in his humiliation. She saw beauty in his humiliation. And I believe that's one of the things that we see um, in this Trial description in which Jesus is tried, we see in the midst of this dark, evil hour, we see a man who is strong and a man who is gracious Um, in a way, perhaps, that you don't see when he's not in his humiliation. It's not, and we oftentimes think, that Jesus, when he... um, when he was persecuted and brutalized and arrested and tortured and crucified, we tend some, sometimes to think that he, he was like a helpless victim. And we feel a sense of, well, I'm really sorry that you know, Jesus had to go through that and had to face such a, a helpless state. But I think that's honestly to, to misread the text And I think it's to misread and misunderstand what's going on here. That, um, like Aslan, he marched forward as an act of the will and as a choice. And one gets the sense that at no time is he outside or without control. In fact, Jesus himself says specifically and explicitly in the Gospel of John, he says, no one takes my life from me. No one has the power to do that. But I, of my own accord, I, of my own choice, my own volition, my own action, I lay down, lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. That's a word of power. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That is, I believe we are to see as Jesus enters into this dark hour that he still maintains authority. He's still the one in charge. And when he allows himself to be arrested and brutalized, he is doing so as a willing choice. And that, church, is um, an evidence of strength. A strength and of grace. And that's more than anything. I I really just want us this morning to sense that above all else. That even in this moment of, of humiliation... When Jesus is laying on, figuratively speaking, stone table, and he is, uh, has been stripped of his glory, he still is braver, more patient, and more beautiful than ever. At the same time, there is an irony in this whole trial because the powers of earth are gathered against him. When I say powers, I mean the visible powers, the one that get the ratings, the one that get the press attention, the one that get the headlines. That is, we have Jesus being judged by by his own religious organization. We might call it ecclesiastical power. We have Jesus judged by a representative of imperial Rome, that is Pontius Pilate. And we have Jesus being judged by Herod, a client king from the region of Galilee. He will stand trial um, underneath all three of these powers. And ironically enough, all three of these powers, or let me lump them into two because we tend to think of them in 21st century America as two. We might call it the power of church or the authority of church and the authority of state. Um, That both of these powers, both of which have been designed and ordained and established by God for particular purposes that are legitimate authorities, but both of them, will fold and buckle. They will show that they are incapable, incompetent, and at the end of the day, weak. Now now that's some of the best truths or ironies. So in Jesus' weakness and humiliation, we see strength, and we see in the powers of the world, exercising their power, we see human brokenness and weakness and incompetence. That That is part of the irony of this this, um, this text. First, we see Jesus um, being tried by his own, if you will, religious organization. Um, the Church of the Old Testament was established and ordained by God. And I seem to be. There we go. To understand a little bit of why we're here in this text and why Jesus is being tried. Um, You have to recognize that over the course of Jesus' public ministry, there were rising tensions between Jesus, this this preacher from Nazareth, who gained a rather massive following in Galilee, and the powers of, of, of Jerusalem. And the more he ministered, the more he preached, the more authority he asserted, the more he became a threat to Jerusalem. And Jesus was bold in what he said. Now, he exposed the hypocrisy of a very twisted religion, He told them on a number of occasions things like, You, you, leadership, in places of power, you are whitewashed sepulchers. That is, you look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of death, dead men's bones. Or you're like a washed cup, which you wash the the outside, but the inside is dirty. That is, you you have this, this nice, shiny performance on the outside, but your heart is so far from the Lord. And he called out the hypocrisy not to be mean, but to expose false enslaving religion. He called them out on the fact that they they elevated tradition over biblical revelation. And by doing so, they ended up oppressing God's people, enslaving God's people, and restricting God's people, and starving God's people spiritually. And Jesus is the good shepherd, the revealer of God, comes and he wants his people to live in proper relationship with the Lord and wants to see this twisted form of religion undone. So much of his teaching to the Jewish leadership was a threat to them, to the character and their theology, to their understanding of things. And then on top of that, he had the simple fact that he did these undeniable acts of power, um, that he fed thousands in the wilderness on a number of occasions, that he healed the sick, not only Jewish but also Gentile. And right there in the vicinity of Jerusalem, he raised the dead. One day Lazarus was dead, the next day he's alive and it's really hard to put that one back in the suitcase and shove it under a carpet. So you have these divine acts of power with these rather um, revelatory and exposing statements about the twisted nature of first century Judaism, that they lost the very heart of what um, they're, 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 God had ordained in the establishment of the temple and so forth that at the center of the law and the center of Old Testament um, religion or worship was the fact that God is, is slow to anger. He's gracious, merciful, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiving. And he actually loves the sinner and loves the en- enemy and, and has a heart of redemption. And that part was completely lost. So by by the time Jesus is three years in, he is a threat to the very foundations of Judaism. And you and I know well enough from history, whenever there is a voice of truth that undermines the status quo of, of a powerful institution, that institution will oftentimes turn to either critiquing or discrediting or if they can't do that, destroying whatever is speaking truth. And the church, church history is actually filled with, I shouldn't say filled. Um, there are times in ecclesiastical history in which the powers that be were threatened by a voice speaking the truth and they snuffed it out. And that's what's happening here. Now they have Jesus. Um, they think they do. They have them in their hand, and, and now they're, they're going to neutralize the problem. Or so they think. And so they try him. This is Luke's version right here. They ask him two questions. And I, I put it in red so you can kind of correspond with your red letter edition, but I realize you can't really read it that well up here. So um, I'll read it for you. The first question, they said, verse 67, If you are the Christ, tell us. So they ask him if he's the Messiah. And by the way, there's nothing illegal about saying that you're the Messiah. Jewish people expected someone to arrive. There's nothing illegal about it. But Jesus refuses to answer on two grounds. One, he's, they're not going to believe anyway, so why say it? And two, they're only willing to answer the question themselves. You're not actually willing to say either way. So he refuses to testify or answer the question. But what he does do is he stops and he quotes a very important verse from the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, about a very powerful, um, authoritative individual who receives a kingdom that has no end. And this is the citation from Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. But from now on, and notice he just simply quotes the verse He doesn't say he's the embodiment of that verse. He simply quotes it. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That is the right hand of Yahweh, the place of power, the place of authority, and the place of dominion. And in the text of Daniel, it seems like this is an authority with, uh, it's a divine authority. So they hear this verse quoted. And so they ask the logical question. Okay, we've asked you if you're the Messiah and you quoted this verse. Now we're going to ask the next question. That is, are you then the Son of God? That is, are you saying that you have divine authority? And notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't explicitly admit it. He rather vaguely suggests it. He says... You say that I am. You say that I am. And it's this vague suggestion, this vague suggestion, those last five English red words that they are going to use to crucify him. Now that is, that is flimsy evidence at best to execute somebody. But I think part of the reason why Jesus was somewhat ambiguous in his statements is that he wanted the true colors of what was going on to come out. At the end of the day, this is a witch hunt. The decision's already been made. The agenda's already been set. Um, execution is already premeditated. Now they're just trying to grasp at anything that they can get to nail him. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that they tried finding false witnesses and they, they couldn't corroborate the story. So here you go. Here's the five words you say You say that I am. Well, this is a a travesty of justice. Um, An an institution of worship that God created that was supposed to embody God's redemption and mercy, to preserve the oracles of God and teach the oracles of God, and to to help people understand that the heart of God was steadfast love and faithfulness. He's a God of covenant, a God of, of forgiveness are now the ones who are throwing Jesus under the bus for no reason at all. And that, that, that tells us something. Again, like I said, this is ironic. A religious institution ordained by God to, to accomplish good and, and reveal God and embody the, the truths of redemption um, is incapable, is broken, and is corrupt. And I think we do, I, I believe we do well as Christians to always remember that any institution, ecclesiastical institution, and I know that people don't really speak of ecclesiastical authority anymore or church authority unless you happen to be a Roman Catholic, in which case there's a pretty high authority over there in the Vatican, or if you happen to be a, a Muslim and you have a pretty high authority in, in Mecca or in Sharia law. Um, most people today who are Christians, Don't speak of ecclesiastical authority, but nevertheless, people still tend to trust. Still tend to trust church personalities, church leaders, and at some level, the church. And it's not to say, of course, that all churches or ecclesiastical authorities are, are all corrupt, but what this tells us is that they are always fallible. And capable of corruption, and therefore should never be ultimately the object of our trust. So, what I'm saying, if you didn't get that clear, when it comes to what we truly trust and believe in, do not trust the church. Yes, a pastor just said that, okay? I'm not saying that it's not a legitimate authority, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be a part of that legitimacy. What I'm saying is it's still a fallen structure because it's still led by fallible men and women. On the other hand, there's Jesus. In these simple responses, he is both wise, he's honest, he's careful, and he's calculated. And these are the only words that he says to them according to the Gospel of Luke. There's a whole lot of silence and that silence is loud in this trial. Because on other occasions, Jesus had no problem dismantling their arguments to the point where they didn't ask him questions anymore. He knew, knew the scripture. He could see right through the, the, the room of mirrors and the smoke. and He could see exactly what was going on and he could call it out and he could disarm his opponents theologically and biblically. But here he's silent. My sense of Jesus from the other Gospels is he could have have silenced, if he wished, his accusers. But he's silent. And there's a reason for that. Because Jesus is submitting himself to the purpose he's come for. That is, he has authority to lay down his life. And he chooses to be silent. He chooses not to defend himself. He chooses to walk the path of humiliation. That's huge. That's strength. It doesn't take strength to react. It doesn't take strength to fight back. It doesn't take strength to to want or seek vengeance. It takes strength to remain silent when fallen humanity would scream out that strength in the face of an ecclesiastical, a church compromised. But this, I said there's just two parts to this. i was just church state, trying to keep it in modern categories. But the church isn't the only one to blame here because in this case, the Old Testament um, institution of um, the high court and didn't have the, 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 the ability to kill Jesus or execute Jesus, so what did they do? They march him over to, to, to the representative of imperial Rome. That is Pontius Pilate. Hey, and I told you, I read, you know, they kind of reshaped the accusation to give it a distinctively anti-Roman um, edge to it so that it would come across as treasonous. Like Jesus ever told anybody or taught anybody you shouldn't give your taxes to Rome. That's just an outright lie and a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. See, this, this religious group is willing to trample their own law that they said they love to get a guy that's causing them problems. What, is, what does Pilate do? He sees through it. He doesn't get to a position of governor in the, in the Roman Empire for being a, a dupe. He sees it. He knows you're just trying to take the guy down because he's a threat. So he questions him, asks him a question, are are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers the same way he answered to the the Jewish people. He says, you say that I am. Again, calculated. Comes back out and says, listen, I, I, I I don't, I don't, I don't, this man's innocent. He says it three times in the chapter. This man's innocent. This man's innocent. This man's innocent. However, even though he's innocent, he's a political liability. He's a political liability. He says, this guy could be a problem. If I don't do the right thing, the town is going to come apart. He is going to be or threaten um, political stability in this town, this part of the world. So what does Pilate do? And it's it's kind of humorous. Like Jesus is kind of a hot potato. Realizes that Herod Antipas is in town, just happens to be in town. Oh, Jesus, you're from Galilee. And Herod Antipas, he, he rules over Galilee. So let's pitch this hot potato over to him. That's what he does. Sends him over to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, uh, he's the one who who, uh, beheaded John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was brutally truthful with him and said that your relationship with this woman is adulterous. So he had him beheaded. He comes across as somewhat of a a, a playboy king. a, um, A pleasure seeker. And he hears that Jesus is coming to him. He's all excited. I've always wanted to see some of the things Jesus can do, like Jesus is going to put on some kind of a little miracle show for him. Right? It's like, can you make elephants fly? (laughs) And what does Jesus do? This text, there's no red words. There's no action. Jesus said nothing and did nothing. Silent and still. Herod has his way with him. Takes the hot potato, the political liability. And by the way, just so you understand the historical parts of it. Listen, if, 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 you, if, if he condemns Jesus, who has a lot of followers in Galilee, that creates some political problems up north. So, hot potato's back in Pilate's lap again. He's got to do something and realizes at this point that this is becoming um, riotous. So let me just read the end statement there, and then I want to bring this to an application. After the whole hot potato thing landed back in in Pilate's lap, it says, Pilate then called together, and I want you to notice everybody who's here. The chief priests, those are the people in charge, and the rulers and the people. So now there's this gargantuan crowd. This is the the people that had gathered to worship at Passover. So there's a lot of them coming from all over the place. And said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all... Back to 13, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, the masses, all cried out together, Away with this man! We also believe, as Christians, that God has divinely ordained that government or state exists. And we believe it is divinely intended to carry out the establishment of justice and the punishment of people who do evil. That is the, the grand mandate of government: establish justice and punish evil-doers. That's it. And here we have the only innocent man ever to walk planet Earth after Genesis 3. If there's one time in which the power that God ordained should have stood by an innocent man, it's right here. But what happens? Well, what happens is what always happens. There's no difference between politics today as then. Is When there's enough, enough collect- collective social, cultural pressure, when enough people are screaming at you, and you're in charge, and you know the masses no longer like you because it's going to require a difficult decision on your part, well, what, do you, what, what more than often happens... Justice buckles. Governing powers forsake justice to cater to the will and the whim of the masses. Last three decades in our own country are evidence of that. The growing pressure, cultural, collective, a person who says, Nope, this is wrong one day because of the pressure now says, Well, no, that's not really wrong anymore for political advantage, gain. So here's power number two that has been divinely ordained to establish justice and punish evil. And it does not stand by the Son of God. It shows itself to be weak, incapable, immoral, and broken. And Jesus, the one who is silent, the one who is still, He's the one who, like Aslan, allowed him, his, his, his mighty hands to be bound. He's the one who chose not to defend himself. He's the one person who didn't buckle under pressure. In the middle of all of this, you find that Jesus is the one who is actively choosing And willing to walk this path. When these two great powers fail, Jesus succeeds. I find it deeply, um, it deeply affects me knowing myself and my humanity. How much when I'm injured, I want to fight. How much when I am belittled, I want to react. How easy it is for me to jump into a, a verbal argument to win. And to know that Jesus, um, he could have he he pulled the shoot any time. I mean, he said it in Matthew, right? He said, listen, I, I, I could call... And 12 legions of angels would like level this place. It's not like I don't have the power. Um, do you remember what he said to, to Pilate? Pilate looks at him and says, don't you know I have authority to condemn you? And Jesus is like, <laughs> you have no authority over me except what's been granted from heaven. That is, Jesus willfully chose to limit his own power, his own voice in that moment, to lay down his life, to allow himself to be laid out on the stone table um, with his glory shorn off of him because he loved us. It was a choice he made. It was, he was not helpless in this. Uh, he was very much sovereign and in authority as he submitted his life to death, And that just, wow, that's the Lord. And that's strength, church. That's, that's strength in the midst of humiliation. That's strength in the midst of weakness. So points, listen, these two great powers that if you don't believe in God at all, whether people believe it's defunct or it's, it's compromised, they still look to it in hope. We're saying, this is not the object of our hope, neither the powers of church or the powers of state, for they both are fallible. But our trust is is in a person who proved himself. When all the weight was coming down, he remained strong and gracious for the sake of love and for the sake of grace and for the sake of justice. That's who we trust. He's the only one worthy of wearing the crown on planet Earth. And thankfully, someday, he will. I mean, he does sense right now, but someday he will physically hear. But he's also our example, and this part I also find encouraging. And this is, uh, with this, I close, is to recognize that um, in places of, well, let me put this differently, when 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 in humiliation and when in a context of weakness, you see the strength of Christ come out. Um, that sets out for us an example that oftentimes we, as followers of Christ, when we're pressed and find ourselves weak and depleted and even humbled, um, that what's in us comes to the surface. And if what's in us is the Spirit of Christ, then that's, that tells us that God's strength and grace is oftentimes more visibly displayed when we're out of strength than when we have our own. And that is a display of strength that screams loudly to people around us. To when, you know, you see a person who's, who you see dealing with cancer and they still are rejoicing, even if it's a, a struggle to rejoice. There's something in them that is coming out amidst the depletion of their physical strength. They have the joy of God's presence in their life. Or to see someone who still has hope when they're grieving death, that hope is a sign that there's something deeper and stronger within, and it doesn't come from us. It comes from the Lord. And that's, God puts himself on display in our weakness um, when his power is made perfect, to quote Paul, in that weakened condition. And that we can rejoice that God is doing good stuff when we find ourselves in weakness. Amen? Bless us, Father, with a a knowledge of your strength, your power. Exalt Christ in our hearts. May we see even in his weakest moments or his moments of deepest humiliation that, in fact, he was strong, that he was gracious, and that he was loving. Strengthen us with this truth, Father, and keep our hearts in the right place, worshiping the right thing. In Christ's name, amen.